Hi everyone, this is episode 37 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Tonight we are joined by our regulars, Kenneth. How's it going, Kenneth? Good evening, going well, things. And Lane Wines here. Hey, how's it, everyone? And this evening we are speaking about data visualization. And in order to enlighten the subject, we've brought in Jeff Fletcher. How's it going, Jeff? Hey, kind thanks. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Now, Jeff, perhaps could you start off by just giving us a bit of a background of, uh, of yourself? Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, I have been around in the internet industry for quite a long time now. Um, I was uh, involved in some of the original uh, implementations of Jinx and some of the early stage telecom internet connectivity. And I've kind of switched between doing either working for an ISP or kind of doing my own thing. So I started a company called The Ant Farm, which does all the radio streaming in South Africa a few years ago. Left there, I've worked at Internet Solutions, have worked at UUNet, which was then WorldCom, then MCI, then Verizon, uh, back to whatever it is called now, MTN Business, yeah. Uh, then uh, worked for a while at a company called 365. We started that as an internet consultancy. Uh, it was while I was there that I started doing some of the data visualization stuff um, and been doing some sort of outside consulting work for people on DataViz. And I'm back at Internet Solutions at the moment working at the research and innovation team. I say at the moment, sounds like I'm planning on terminating it, but no, I'm there. I'm happily at the Internet Solutions research and innovation team. Oh, that's cool. I mean, the background of... Uh, you've had quite a lot of experience with data visualization and we were saying in the pre-show that... Uh, I remember uh, you giving a presentation on D3 at the Josie Ruby user group. So uh, would you agree that data visualization has become a very popular topic in recent years and it's really been peaking recently? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it, in fact, if you put it on the Gartner hype cycle, it's now just past the peak of inflated expectations. So um, it has been something that has spurred a lot of businesses to, uh, there a lot of new startups that are focusing on the field and there was a lot of buzz around what it what it can and should be able to do for you and it, it's interesting to see i don't think it was any specific catalyst i think it was dragged along into uh, uh via the whole big data push so as all the various marketing companies put their efforts into trying to sell big data visualization as a uh, skill set came along with it so like right now i think we're seeing a the sort of slowdown in interest, meaning that the interest is still big, but it's not accelerating. It's not growing as fast as it was. Well, so it's at that kind of stable plateau now, or is it, is it on a decline? Yeah, um, well, yeah, so it is, I think, on a stable plateau. I think the what's going to happen is that as any of these kind of, and it's not necessarily a technology, it's kind of more of a process or just a way of doing things. It needs to now people need to see value in spending money on data visualization. So you're at a point now where everyone is aware of it. And I think in terms of its utility, it now is at the point where people who have spent money need to say that we need to get something back from it. So I think that I, the, the Gartner hype cycle kind of talks about these things. So what you're going to hit next is what's known as the trough of disillusionment. So it will still be known, but a lot of people are going to go, yeah, we spent money, but it hasn't necessarily done what we expected it to do. It's the same as people who've um, spent a whole bunch of money on big data infrastructure. So if you spent a lot on a Hadoop platform um, and then worked out that it hasn't actually given you anything more useful, um, then 
data visualization sits in a similar spot. So it's very, very topical, but um, it's kind of topical beyond what it should be. That's interesting. I would have thought it's been through the trust of disillusionment already. And like <clears throat> D3 is our plateau of productivity. So there's still much to come then. Um, yeah, no, no, definitely. I still think there's quite a lot to come. I think that um, the what D3 has done is it's brought a lot of the stuff that was done traditionally either on pen and paper or in Excel into the web world. So um, a lot of the work that was there, like if you look at the most D3 stuff, it's the, the stuff that you are seeing as the examples tend to be showcases, but most of the work is just really putting normal charts that you otherwise had on Excel or um, someone had uh, drawn on some other earlier package and I just made it more accessible uh, via the web. So the um, there is still a point, and especially when we're talking outside of D3. So stuff like Tableau um, and ClickView and those type of services, which are oddly enough actually more widely known and more widely recognized as the de facto data visualization standard. People are spending a lot of money on these tools and not necessarily, they, they still have to see the returns. The returns are not going to be immediate. I suppose I'm coming at this more from a um, market slash financial perspective than a pure technical perspective. I think from a technical uh, point of view, a lot of the stuff is very stable and very, um, and, and from a plateau perspective, it's reached where it needs to reach. But this is more from a perception of people who are wanting to use data visualization in their, their projects. So they have a couple of options. They can go and buy Tableau or they can go and buy ClickView or spend some money getting someone developing something in D3. The tools are there. The tools are where they need to be. What I'm specifically saying is that from a as a market or as a as some like something that someone's spending money on to get a return for their business, if you're spending money on something like Tableau, the likelihood that it's going to deliver the returns that you expect or not, it's there's an over uh, the expectations are higher than what the returns will be. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I was thinking that the D3 yeah. has been such a quick turnaround, like, I know, that's not the right word, but it was just such an improvement. And before that, it was almost like you had to hack high charts. That was your best bet to get yeah. anything up that your boss <laughs> yeah. would like. I mean, no offense, I think yeah. people do amazing stuff with high charts, but that fits that sweet spot of like Excel on the web. Um, and yes, with D3, exactly. the people build absolutely amazing stuff. I like trawling through that Blocks website and, and seeing what Mike Bostock yeah. and his crowd's doing. It's it's always right. nuts. But I feel like we've kind of yeah. jumped the gun a little bit. So maybe we should just for the audience um, explain to them what D3 is and where it fits in the scope and kind of what it does. Okay, sure. I, we could also maybe take a little bit uh, of a step slightly further back to uh, figure out how we got to D3. So... We could mm, kind of yes. do a short a short history of, of visualization. Um, the the early pioneers of data visualization were um, the guys that were doing cartography. So map makers had to draw a lot of stuff. So they had to understand the idea of putting a symbol onto a page so that someone could understand what that symbol is. And one of the things they had to do is they had to understand that the, a map equates to distance and people had to look at the difference between distances between two points. So they spent a lot of time working out the best way to display things so that people could understand numerically what they were seeing on a sort of a visual pane. 
And then you started to have people who were first starting to look at ways of displaying uh, information, so numbers, in a visual form. So there's a couple of very famous initial graphs. There's one, uh, the first pie chart was by Florence Nightingale. Um, and she did one that was basically, it was a pie chart showing the number of deaths that were caused uh, in World War One, that were caused by people actually during in, uh, encounters with the enemy versus in hospitals. And mostly people were dying from infections by a factor of like five to one. And she has this famous chart as one of the, the first implementations of that, um, showing the difference between the number of people who were dying from infections um, while they were being treated and she said that if they could figure out how to fix that they would have um a whole they, they would have far fewer soldier deaths and the other famous one is uh a guy by the name of john snow who was trying to work out where um there were people in city of london who were getting uh, contracting cholera and they were trying to work out why it was so it was the first sort of uh epidemiological studies so the first time actually someone used numbers and a picture to try and work out where it was so that john snow cholera map he drew he put basically blocks on the uh flats or i don't know what they're called then in london but like sort of tenement blocks where people were living and they looked and they found concentrations and they found that one of the pumps there was a leak between the pump and the sewer and that's why people were contracting cholera but these were pioneers that had never seen this before. Before Florence Nightingale did that, no pie chart existed. So all of the stuff sort of cascaded and started to get uh, built upon and built upon. And then you started to have a standard lexicon that people could use for, or like, not a lexicon, like a taxonomy of charts that people could use. So pie charts and bar charts and various people had sort of then gathered these into books. But there was a, a, a guy called Edward Tufty. Um, who has written a couple of books, and they're sort of the seminal works on it. And he a, was a big influencer for Mike Bostock. And Edward Tufty just talked about the, the, the design rules and some of the aesthetic rules about how you uh, present uh, data visually. And so his books were then, then became sort of the, the works that a lot of, uh, like uh, Ben Fry, who created Processing, um, and Mike Bostock were, would read and start to actually uh, build some of their work on. So from there, then you started to have uh, Excel and a lot of the standard charting programs that we have, or standard sort of spreadsheet and data manipulation programs. And they had visualization as an afterthought. And when Mike Bostock was at university, he started building uh, something called Protovis, which was sort of one of the earlier versions. And it was quite specific. It made certain graphs. It wasn't as open as D3 is. And after um, a couple of releases of that, he realized that there was a better uh, version, better way of doing it. So rather than being specific about what type of chart you could make, he rewrote it to be something that would bind data to some kind of uh, well, some kind of output, something that could be a measure that could be used to then display whatever it is you wanted to display. And from there, the early versions of D3 started to come out, um, and it's grown to be probably the, the most useful JavaScript library from my perspective ever made. Um, it was just, it's quite, it, it took me a while to get my head around how it works. It's one of those things where you have that aha moment with it. When I realized that there's no, you're never looping. All the looping and everything is taken care of kind of via an abstraction. And I think there's a type of language that 
like a type of programming language that has a name like this. I think it's declarative, but I'm not 100% sure. So something I have to go and look up again. So D3 is sort of a programmatic abstraction that still uses JavaScript as its base to implement things. But you never have to know the dimensions or the size of the particular um, data set that you're connecting to. Once you've connected to it, whatever it displays for you or whatever it converts on the other side, it's all taken care of by the underlying mechanics. And generally, D3 builds things using uh, SVG, but you can use the Canvas attribute. You can use tables. I've had some stuff where I've built it into 3.js to build uh, three-dimensional objects. It can, it will basically say, I have this data set, and I'm going to fetch it from uh, an API call or a JSON file or a CSV file, and I want to manipulate it this way. So I can create arcs, which means I can create pie charts. I can create things of different lengths, which means I can create bar charts. I can create a path, which means I can create a line chart. All of those kind of basic layouts are built into D3. And also the, the all the scale utilities it's got for working out all the number crunching so you don't have to do anything hard color scales there's a ton of stuff in there it's yeah. really really fantastic yeah yeah what i what i really like with d3 there is how it kind of, it starts off with these base primitives it gives you really the nuts and bolts building blocks and then gives you higher levels of abstraction yeah. uh, that build on top of that uh, just within the framework yes. so at the base level you could uh, just bind to an html table yep but it's got all the tools in there that you can use the same binding structure to draw svgs and get your scales looking really nice etc so yeah d3 is awesome yeah yeah i mean you can use it to and in fact it, it can now with the new version of uh, uh d3 version 4 you can start to transform and manipulate css attributes so um, you can then sort of go between color scales and sort of some of those other various things. Um, but I think one of the, the complications is, is D3 is like Excel in that there's a lot of good examples and there's a lot of, uh, sort of easy mechanisms to get into uh, doing a chart or putting something there. But the, the tricky part is that the design component is not inherent in D3. So one of the reasons why I really like it is that it is not prescriptive as to how things should look. So whenever I'm building a chart, I don't use um, any of, I, I try and use as few of the um, pre-built examples to say, I want it to look exactly like that. It comes down to the fact that I want that axis exactly at that color depth, exactly at this position. I wanted to use exactly this font. I want the background grid lines to be exactly this color. You can get down to that level of detail and that level of granularity. Um, and the, which also means that it, it's more work from a design perspective. You have to think more about how the final item is going to look versus using something like high charts or some of the, you actually get sort of, I think it's D or C4 or um, C3. C3, yeah. Um, which is then a sort of a higher level. Uh, abstraction using D3 as the, the underlying mechanism. And there's different versions of that. There's a, one I was looking at uh, D3TO, I think, um, which is basically it provides you a series of pre-built libraries that you can use to say um, invoke your bar chart like this, but it gives you more direct access to the, the actual base constructor. 
So you can still go and change the specific color of the axis or change exactly where it sits. I guess it's worth mentioning that uh, D3 stands for data-driven documents. Um, yeah. uh, that is <laughs> underlying core. So, I mean, yeah, I guess it, it, if it didn't become clear on what we just said, like, I mean, D3, it involves as much of a silver bullet as it is, it involves a lot of work to get going. I mean, there's the design part. I don't know if you've got any tips for um, maybe if somebody wants to design the final product and say something like Inkscape, you know, beforehand to kind of influence how they would build the code. Because I just know from my personal experience with it, it's been like drawing it out on paper, figuring it out, discussing it with people and using highlighters and whatnot, and then like letting rip and seeing if you can actually get it done on screen. I don't know if there's an easier way. No, that is the best way. It's um, drawing it on paper or on a whiteboard. One of the one of the things that that um, you find, especially with with this, is if you design it first on computer, people tend to assume it's the final version. So drawing something out on paper is a much better way to do it because you don't. It's it's not something that's precious. You don't feel like it's an, um, approximating the final version. So um, with highlighters and just kind of getting a sense of how something should look on paper is a much better way to approach it. The But D3, I think, is sort of in the library of tools that people can use. I've seen incredible work done with Excel because Excel allows you a certain amount of fine-grained um, work and you can also kind of dig into some of the visual basic macros. But the work was designed well first. So... Uh, Something like D3 is a good tool if you are a good software developer to use to do this type of thing. If you're not a good software developer, something like Excel or Tableau is easier because the constructs for the things that you want to build have been pre-made. And you then maybe not going to have as much flexibility on it, but something that is well-designed is um, it's it's well-designed no matter what. The, uh, there's a... Um, a dashboard uh, design consultant or kind of um, a lecturer called Stephen Few, and he has a book called Show Me the Numbers, um, but he's on his website, Perceptual Edge. He runs a competition for, a, for dashboard design, and there have been some that have been submitted, kind of people have built it um, in um, Photoshop. Sometimes people have actually gone and coded it using D3 or whichever library they looked at. But I've seen one that was actually built in Excel. It was an amazing piece of work. It was really, really good in terms of the information layout. It highlighted the things that needed to be highlighted. It was accessible. It was easy to um, understand what it is that you needed to see. But And I also didn't know that Excel could do this. So like, I've been using Excel for years and years and years just for standard spreadsheet-y stuff. But when I actually saw what the, the, he could do, I was really, really impressed. So you could just feed an external data source to Excel? Because I remember, right, Excel can connect like over ODBC or something to databases, or you might be able to feed it to stuff somewhere yeah. in a different fashion. You can give it a CSV. I, I think the, 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 from a data visualization perspective, there's a point at which you'd need to have assumed that someone else has done the data work. So they've then gone and parsed and cleaned and done everything for you. Or if you're doing it yourself, you kind of need to put a Chinese wall between those two things to say the visualization must be done this way and assume that the data is going to get you in a format that you can use. 
So this was static. It was um, a bunch of school children, I think. They were uh, high school kids, and they were looking at their different grades across different subjects. And what they wanted to highlight was kids that were requiring extra attention from teachers. How did you make it so that the teacher could see who was the person that they needed to help? And specifically, it was multiple um, things that they had to evaluate. So it was a static CSV file that the different people got and then sort of uh, worked on. So the the idea that a lot of data visualization is static. It's basically it's a one-off thing that you're doing. Um, where it gets more complex, where you're then doing something that's updating or something that's interactive or animating, that's probably a smaller percentage of the amount of work that's up there. The majority of basic data visualization work is taking KPI values that need to be presented for that particular month and just presenting them and making sure that the information that needs to be highlighted has been highlighted correctly. So whether that is in Excel or D3 doesn't matter. Those are design choices that are um, of primary importance. Okay. And while you were saying about the source of, of data that's so important, like I guess that's one challenge. I mean, it's very easy for us to, like a developer, you know, generate some, uh, like build a Ajax endpoint that D3 is going to call and you just collapse your whole database while you're joining over a gazillion tables and, and shipping 10 megs worth of JSON, crashing IE. <laughs> I mean, that's one of many things that can go <laughs> yeah. wrong. Uh, believe me, I've <laughs> I've done that to myself. Um but is there anything else um, that's like typical pitfalls that could save somebody like a, like Artex? So we know we could like draw on paper or whiteboard. So it's a typical prototyping thing. Don't get precious. Uh, yep. Make sure that you communicate the design like and, and the information itself really clearly, which that in itself is a huge challenge. Um, there's like getting data to it, be it live or static or whatnot. Yep. Um, I mean, so, that's a bunch of stuff people have to do already. What else do they usually trip over? So um, from a design perspective, I think the, the two errors that are made, and this is just purely from a, a basic design perspective. So if you are, the types of people who get to do this are either graphic designers who are given some sort of infographic-like brief um, or BI people slash developers who are then doing more on the data side. So a graphic designer is going to do a huge amount of uh, over over design. So there's a, a website called uh, it's viz.wtf, and they what they do is they show examples of bad data visualization. And the um, I, I actually have some here. I don't know if you said that uh, um, uh, I could try and show pictures if possible, but um, or I can send them to you. We can actually um, uh, link to it later. Mm -hmm. But the, specifically, it's, it's about just terrible design choice where the main thing is that the information needs to be presented correctly. So if a graphic designer is coming at the problem, they're going to over-design. So it will be uh, too many shapes that don't make sense. So using triangles in bar graphs where because they look interesting or trying to utilize a, uh, a bunch of pictures or pictograms that have nothing to do with what's there. And conversely, someone coming at this from a BI perspective is going to use the basic tool, assuming that all of the work has been done on the data side. So as long as the data is put basically in front of the person, they're doing the right thing. Um, so they might use a standard uh, 
graph that's available in Excel and uh, just put it up there and go, hang on, since uh, I'm not a designer, I'm going to try and put a little bit of information in there or put a little bit of aesthetic into it. Start making 3D graphs or those horrible 3D pie charts with about 400 different divisions that you can't read. The most important thing, and this is what is people need to think about the legibility of it. Can I see the number I'm trying to present in my data visualization? Is that the core thing that's there? Everything else can go away. And the key problem is actually over design. So there's a thing that uh, Edward Tufte talks about called the data ink ratio, which is the ratio of the amount of, of graphic that you're using to show the data. So if you're putting bold text onto a label, that's more ink than necessary. You don't need to have more um, information. If you've got grid lines and the grid lines don't actually help you read the graph, it's extra ink that you don't need. And all of these things just add to making it murkier and harder to see the information. So again, Excel or D3, it doesn't matter. If there's an over-design or too much graphics that has been put into it, you don't actually get the information that you need out of it. And actually the key requirement is simplicity. Sometimes just a bar graph with four bars in it is what's necessary to convey the information. But people will start to add depth to it. They'll start to add other colors into it. They'll start to add a whole bunch of information or a whole bunch of ink onto the canvas that actually doesn't add to what you're trying to see. So the, the key design, the key failure starts with actually design. So there's always an over-design. People assume that you have to design more than you do with data visualization, but you don't. Um, and then the other thing is people, there is a idea of how you actually encode information. And this has been studied quite a lot, how the human brain actually works with trying to convert a visual on a piece of paper or on a screen into a number. So if I'm trying to compare four different numbers, the you are most accurate, and this is testing that they've done. So they've shown graphs to people to say, can you tell the difference what is this number relative to that number just giving a visualization of it and position on a line is the one we're best at then it's length then it's um angle so position on a line is kind of like a line chart then length would be a bar chart then angle would be a pie chart then area so we often have different sized um, people put different sized circles and then we have to try and interpret the difference between those things and um, I had a moment recently, I was at a, a pizza shop and uh, I um, was asking for a wheat-free base and they didn't have the large one. So he said, well, not a problem. He'll give me two smalls. And I thought about it and I thought, okay. So he brought them to me and I looked at them and I thought, given what I know, just looking at this, can I add the total area in my head to see if it's bigger than a large? Um, and when I looked at it, I thought, no, totally, I've won. I've gotten more pizza out of this particular deal. But then I did the calculation. I actually took out my phone and calculated the area. And one large pizza was actually um, larger in terms of total area than two small ones. But it just looked like they would be bigger. So we're not actually particularly good at that, at trying to work out the difference in the encoding of numbers in something in, in an area. Then volume. So when people do a 3D uh, chart, your brain switches it into a volumetric thing. So then it's trying to work out the difference in volume. And if you, we're actually very bad at that. So if you have a block like a, a sort of a, a, a cube and another cube next to it, trying to work out the actual ratio of the two is quite difficult. 
And then we get into color space. So people will often use mechanisms um, such as changing color tone or changing color hue. So you might go from red to green, or you might go from dark red to light red as a way of encoding numbers into those. And those are the least accurate. Um, so when you're actually working in the color space, that's those are those are the least likely to be able to show you what those numbers uh, mean. But people don't know that. That's, and those are sort of fundamentals that are have been studied and actually you, you should be able to use. So when doing a data visualization, if, and this is what graphic designers often do, is they'll use color as a way of showing the difference between um, two numbers. But we're very bad at determining what the actual result is. So applying the basic rules to say, have a look at what encoding mechanism you're using to make sure that you've got the most important numbers portrayed in a way that's easy for someone to read. Um, and then the if you have to add more values to that. So for example, a scatter plot, a scatter plot uses position. So we're quite good at working out relatively if something is higher than something else. But then we add something like say if it's a, a rand value or whatever it might be, we add that as a size. If that information is more important, you put that on one of the axes as position because we're better at understanding position than we are with the size of objects. Make the thing that's less important the size. And if you wanted to add another value into that, you could use color. But just know that the person's not going to understand the difference between the colors that you see as well as they are the difference in terms of their position. So the problem is down to the fact that people don't think about what the most important piece of information is that they're trying to put forward. Mind blown. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, that, that was awesome to hear. Yeah. I must say, I think it's, oh, man, I feel sorry if I'm blaming the wrong people here, but I think it's Apple who's famous for showing all kinds of charts in their presentations, but they, they 3D, um, like yeah. 3D pie charts yes. that they shift so that you, the slice they want to highlight, no matter how small it is, it visually looks so much bigger. And yeah. people just go like, yes, you're right. That slice of the pie is the biggest, but if you <laughs> normalize the camera angle, it's like it's actually useless. Yeah, so that, that there is that famous one, Steve Jobs standing in front of something saying Apple's uh, smartphone market share versus I think Nokia at the time, where Nokia was still a thing. Um, but they had done it, and, and what it is is Apple was like twenty six percent, and Nokia was twenty eight percent. But they put Nokia at the top and Apple at the bottom, made a three D chart, and then just tilted it slightly back. So the volumetric difference comes in. So suddenly that thing looks bigger by volume by a lot. And since we're bad at judging volume, we just assume it's bigger. And they even put the numbers on it. So you could look at the numbers, but your brain was telling you something else. I've heard of examples as well where on the, let me get this right, on the y-axis they use uh, logarithmic scales. So you're completely reading like the wrong thing or they cut off the bottom. So they don't start at zero and it's like, it's still accurate, but they're actually blatantly lying to you. Unless you understand what you're seeing, you're misinterpreting yeah. it and by design. I, I, it's not, I don't think people interrogate what they're seeing that much. They assume that you're not lying to them when you're presenting a graph. So um, the, if you've gone to the effort of calculating the data and presenting the graph, why would you lie? So there's this, there's this um, Fox News is great at it. So Fox <laughs> News will often have these things that are, that are ridiculously done or just outright lies. But the fact that it's up on television, people just assume it's correct. I saw something in, earlier in this uh, US political season before I started ignoring all the 
circus was they also had these numbers underneath of the different candidates when it was still like four people in the race and if you added up the percentages it went like way <laughs> over 150 yes. percent yeah <laughs> but that's typical fox news yeah. you, i mean it's, every day is april fool's day for them um just on the 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 color the idea of color um there's a, a woman called cynthia brewer who spent a lot of time understanding how people perceive color and she worked out that the standard RGB uh, numbering system that we use for uh, computer-based color doesn't trans translate well to how people understand uh, and see and visualize color. So the idea of the hue between different colors, is this color uh, as orange as that color is blue? Um, is something that she's she's studied and spent a lot of time working out how our brains work. But to that end, what she's also done is she's created a, a website called Colorbrewer. So it's B-R-E-W-E-R, colorbrewer2.com, I think. Um, and she gives you color palettes to use because they use the HSL space, which is hue, saturation, and luminance. Um, as a better metaphor for encoding numbers into color. And if you say, I've got so your two data types, so it's either quantitative, so something that is like actually measured, like temperature, or qualitative, so something like people's names or the types of cars they drive. And if they are, if it's quantitative and you need colors that are along almost like a color axis, so you want to go from uh, light green to dark green, she actually will say, these are the number of breakpoints you need. Um, here's a color set and you can basically like mix and match and choose. And then she'll also add, uh, to make stuff color safe. So, uh, for people who are colorblind. And the one thing I always get stuck with is, um, the lack of color depth on projectors. So, so often I've put up a map or put up something and then there's something missing. Cause I like to use light gray in the background, which on all the monitors I've used would be fine, but they don't necessarily work on projectors. So she actually has a, a good website to help you do help you with color choice to pick the colors that you need to make sure that it's encoded kind of according to some sensible um, mechanism that people will understand a bit better. Yeah, another tool that I find is awesome there is Adobe's color tool. Uh, I think they've changed the name recently, but it used to be uh, yeah. K U L E R. Yes. Yeah, but that, it's been rebranded recently. It's now just Adobe Color. Um, but it's a really useful tool for just finding com colors that uh, that work together um, in the in that HSL way rather than just thinking of yes. RGB. So in in fact, um, the I use that if I'm looking for interesting design palettes. So if I'm looking for something as like a color set that has a good aesthetic appeal, but if I'm ever encoding on a chart, I'll make sure I use the color brewer stuff. Um, in fact, there is a built into d3 you can the, he's got one of the things on his github repository on mike bostock's repository is a uh, javascript library to invoke the color bro color set now one thing with the colors that i never knew is it was last year at ruby fusa pavel in his talk one of the things he said was uh grays um for people with depression uh, depending on like how depressed they might be, is the grays start fading out, and if they're having a good day, grays are good. So, so like depending on what the state of their brain is at that stage, like chemically. 
yeah. like the grays is the most useless color like it completely fade away or it can become completely like black and that's quite bizarre if we you, you don't know this and it's like this kind of work that cynthia does is such a good help for all of us because we would never think about it yeah i i was not aware of that i know that color the sort of the the depth of color so how dark or how light it is is very dependent on what's surrounding it so there's that famous optical illusion of a gray block it looks like it's changing color because the background is changing color but it doesn't actually change color but i'd never really thought about it in the context of sort of somehow tied to your emotional step i yeah it would be interesting to look at the um the other thing that that uh from an over-designed perspective is uh, with uh, overuse of color. Someone pointed out that if you ever have a look at design conferences that are talking about color, so you'll often have design conferences that are focusing on sort of uh, the notion of color in advertising or in marketing, have very limited use of color because color should actually be something that's used to highlight. And there are, um, there is a, a set of design principles that whenever you're doing data visualization work is is good to reference it's something something called the gestalt principles and it's just basically a series of things that they've understood as to how people when they're looking um looking at something how, how they their their minds work with regards to clustering and clumping and one of the things they do is so uh, if you've got a whole bunch of numbers and you ask someone to count the number three it's very difficult because the three doesn't stand out you have to slowly go through it sequentially but if you highlight the number three in a different color you're you can very quickly see it so these are the things that they know about so apart from the encoding stuff the other thing that's worth knowing is the gestalt principles which is how things are connected if you put lines in between them or you draw boxes around them or if they're close together they appear like they belong together um and you can uh there's Closure is another one. So you can draw a circle or a semicircle, but if you leave a little bit out, your brain still makes it look like a closed circle. So those are things that from a, a design aesthetic perspective, you can also think about if you want to highlight something specific or you want to kind of make sure that certain things appear like they belong together. So if you've got bar charts, um, and this is a standard thing Excel will do, you would have say three or four bars next to each other, um, but in different colors. And then say for the following month, you would have the same uh, color bars, but of different heights. Your brain immediately, as long as the bars are closer to each other in those two clusters, your brain assumes that they're part of the same thing. So you don't have to think. There's no cognitive load to think about the fact that they sit together. However, if you made them all the same width apart, it's quite difficult to work out which is which. So uh, the design components are, it's also fairly well studied. It's just not often uh, thought about or implemented. Perhaps I can jump in here and just yeah. take a slightly different tack. A lot of the stuff we're talking about to me comes up as as like sort of info visualizations or what do you call yeah. it, infographics. Um, you know, way, way back, way back when I uh, I was also looking at these kind of visualization things more as sort of like almost like videos or being able to explore data yeah. sets. You know, and 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 visualizations for me were much more interactive. Like I wanted to be able to kind of explore them. So I, you know, I get what you're saying. It's like super interesting to be able to take a piece of data and like draw a map of the data, like get get the information out of the data. It's cool. But 
Are the, you know, are they, perhaps you can talk to any use cases around like for more interactive data visualization. The, the standard rule for anything that's interactive is summarize first, zoom later. Um, and the, the general uh, principle for, especially for something that's explored, is that when you arrive at it, you need to be able to see at a high level everything that you need, want to work with, and then you can delve into a particular area. In, interactivity, I think, is great, much more for exploration than it is for trying to persuade or show something. So the infographics um, and the normal data visualizations, generally you're trying to persuade someone. You're trying to say that, or at least just kind of give them evidence of something being true. Whereas with interactivity, it's much more um, uh, of an exploration. So you're wanting to go and find out about something, or you want to be able to filter, or you want to be able to remove, or you want to be able to zoom. So but the design principles still apply. Legibility should be the primary focus. Um, and then in that world, you're getting more into kind of uh, user experience design stuff. So things need to be in a way that it makes sense that you could click on that to show more information. So the standard visual affordances that go with normal web design or UX design um, need to exist within the um, interactive data visualization as well. It's amazing that it's very, it's, it's quite a polarizing thing. I know some people that can't stand interactive visualizations. As far as they're concerned, it shouldn't be there at all. You should only use it to uh, demonstrate something. But the, especially for large data sets or data sets where you don't have a specific view as to what's inside there, um, then a good data visualization, a good interactive one can give you those aha moments where you have a look and go, hey, that's interesting. Why is that line doing that particular thing? Um, and the and for larger data sets, it's almost the only way that you can actually wrestle with it because in some cases, the numbers are just too big. But again, good design ethics should be the primary thing. You can still design a data visualization, interactive data visualization on paper and spend time understanding the interactions and how someone will um, go and start to work with it the, before you actually start committing something to uh, PC. And, and are there any specific tools in the interactive visualization space that people can look out for? Um, the one that I like to use is RStudio. Um, so R, I, for, I, don't know, I suppose just as an explanation for people who don't know, um, is a statistical programming language. It's kind of competes a lot with Python and Pandas for manipulating data, but it has a very good graphics library. And you can quickly uh, bring up a graph, have a look, and then uh, have it move on. So there's um, it, it'll, the, the R Studio interface allows you to play with data. You can go and fetch data from a whole bunch of different sources. But then you're using sort of one master tool, and you're having to spend quite a lot of time delving into particular areas. D3 is very good for interactivity. It's far better for interactivity than it is for um, static uh, data visualization stuff. Um, and then something like Tableau. I've not used Tableau much. I've played a little bit with the uh, free version, not the, yeah, the, the Tableau public, but I was much happier in the D3 world. Um, it's just allowed me more options there. But I think if it's the first time you're wanting to actually start playing with the data set and seeing what visual information is there, 
the uh, R Studio is good. Do you guys use have you used R Studio much? Okay, thanks. Uh, not R Studio, but we did a project a while back with sort of embedded R in a website. It was quite interesting. Yeah. So uh, R is also one of those that took me a while to warm to, um, and recently I found myself using R to manipulate a CSV file as opposed to just opening it in Excel because it was quicker. Uh, you, you eventually kind of get that mental paradigm as to how something works. Um, so R Studio, I'm, I'm actually favoring it over Excel at the moment. I mean, Excel is also good for exploratory work, but it's not not that interactive. Sure, sure. Thanks. Yeah, I, th I think one of the uh, greatest demonstrations of that interactive uh, yes. data sets is uh, WASIMAP. Yeah. We, we spoke about that a few episodes ago, but uh, if you're looking at a data set as large as something like the Statistics South Africa, the census database, um, you, you can't just take a cursory look at that data and get, get an idea of the trends and things like that. You yep. need to be able to dig into it and explore it. And the guys over there at code for essay did one hell of a job putting WASIMAP together. Yeah, no, it's an, it's an amazing piece of work. Um, the, so, so mapping, I think, is in of itself its own specialized field of uh, data visualization. But with a lot of the very good interactive um, visualization implementations, they, they become very specific to the domain that people are working on. So um, the, the, one of the more famous ones is the chord map that got used for mapping the overlapping DNA across the different genomes that people were working on. And the, the story behind it was that the, um, the woman who was doing the, the data visualization spent almost two years just questioning the people who would use it and spent all of her time trying to understand what particular pitfalls they had because there's different ways of approaching visualizing interconnects between a lot of different sources. So you could use um, a kind of node map. So you have a whole bunch of nodes and then interconnections between them, but that becomes a visual mess very, very quickly. Then there are um, some systems where they kind of use really, really big uh, scatter plots. And then you can look at what clusters come together, but it didn't None of those actually solved any of the problems that the um, the people that she was building the visualization for. They, they would look at it and go, yeah, but I'm going to have to spend the same amount of time digging through the, the map or whichever particular version you'd created. Nothing was um, jumping out uh, as being useful. And eventually she tried the chord map version of it and then realized there's a few iterations or a few changes she could make to have chords that would shrink and expand depending on which particular bit of information they were viewing. And at that point, it became useful to them because the interactions between how their data was structured ideally lent itself to that particular implementation. So then they could use that to start as their starting point for exploration to go and have a look at what other gene sequences matched better to other gene sequences. And it was that final moment that made sense. So I think one of the, the other key things as a sort of a tip, uh, a tip from a data visualization perspective is to always work with the final user in mind. And sometimes people assume that they know that this chart would be useful for someone, 
because they've spent a lot of time working with the data, but they don't actually need to necessarily work with the the data in its next logical step thereafter. So especially for interactive um, work, it's it's very important to have that kind of final touch with the person who's going to be using the data and knowing that there are different ways of doing it and there's basic exploration that you can do in our studio. But if you're building something specific, someone to go and explore, you actually have to know what they're going to use it for. It's not necessarily just about presenting the information in, in, in an interactive environment. It's about presenting information in a way that allows them to gain more knowledge about the particular thing you're looking at. Something I always like to do when, when doing data modeling is figure out what questions am I going to ask about this data yeah. later down the road. And it sounds like that, that's pretty much what you're describing with yeah. just keeping your end user in mind. Uh, but as a developer, that, that process can start right yeah. uh, at the beginning of building software. Um, because you know that you've got a certain set of features in mind that you need to build into software. Uh, and therefore, you're going to model your data in a certain way that you'll be able to access that and ask the ask questions of the data in the right way. And then leading into that, with more leading away from that rather, is then visualizing that data using charts, graphs, whatever other yeah. formats you may have. And, and I think in that whole sort of chain, I think a really good data visualization implement, uh, implementation isn't done by one person doing data visualization. It's a group of people. So there is someone who understands the programming and the data model that is going to be working with the person doing the design to say, how are these two going to interact? And in terms of the algorithm that's going to be um, used to do some kind of statistical calculation, there's someone who needs to actually understand the maths behind it. To say, I understand this well enough to know that we're going to use this particular regression model against that particular data set that it's starting to get something that's meaningful. And all of these people need to be in the chain towards uh, talking to the person at the end. The data visualization specific stuff is knowing the design criteria and knowing some of the fundamentals about encoding to make sure that the work that everyone else has done um, isn't uh, then left behind so that it's either something that someone doesn't want to look at because it doesn't have aesthetic appeal always confusing to look at because you can't understand what those primary parts are but it is a team of people like a good data product is many people in the chain rather than just one person who's drawing graphs so jeff would you recommend working with a designer when you're doing visualizations um i would recommend working with someone who is work has done at least a a course in the specifics of data visualization Designers have good aesthetic appeal. That's that's what they do. They spend a lot of time understanding what attracts your eye to a particular part of the page. But there's certain things that are counterintuitive in data visualization that designers often get wrong. So I would say yes, but with a caveat that they've at least spent some time understanding some of those components about encoding or some of those components about color utilization to make it work better. Because at the end of the day, you, you want to present something to someone that not only is it correct, but it's also uh, pretty to look at. It, that uh, Having a, a data visualization that is appealing makes it so much easier to try and find the information that you want. So I would say yes, but just obviously with that caveat. Yeah, sure. Yeah. They, they need to understand the domain, I guess. Yeah, and it, it, it's, it's one of those things that I think people assume they know um, 
because it comes from the fact that if you've spent a lot of time learning design, um, the the idea you spend a lot of time learning at how people look at pictures, but it's different, or how people look at graphics, but that's different to how people read information. There are some specific rules that just need to be thought about. Is there any courses um, that you could recommend, even if it's just like a free ebook or like some short course or Code Academy or something? They are, there is one now that's come up on um, Coursera. That's uh, a short course through, um, but it w uses Tableau as the um, the software. You can, and you, I think you can just use the free version for it. But Harvard run a really good one. Um, it's their ComSci one seven one, and all the videos, lectures, and uh, required reading is available one year behind. So they're on the twenty sixteen course at the moment, but the full video set of all lectures and all. Um, sessions for 2015 is available. So it's cs171.org. Um, and to me, that's about the best resource because all of the additional literature that you should be reading is listed there. So they talk about the Tufti books that you should be reading, and they talk about the, the books on visual perception, and they talk about some of the books on cartography. So it, that that one, um, you, but it's that's self-paced. You you going onto a website, you're seeing courses. They don't. It's not structured for you as an online student. It's just something that they do. They make the videos about. Oh, thanks. That's yeah. awesome. That particular one is. Um, that was the first one I found actually. So since then, I found others, but I've never found them to be as good. And that one gets very in depth. It talks about like how the the eye is structured and how the sort of the brain perceives various patterns based on the shapes of the rods and cones in the eye. It's, it's very interesting, but quite uh, quite in depth. Probably not as necessary as say some of the shorter courses. That's just some of the do's and don'ts in terms of data viz. But it's very interesting. I know that's super useful. Um, so. Have you got any any recommended reading of perhaps just those do's and don'ts I mean, besides the in-depth courses? So the one that I can recommend, it's, uh, I think his name's Diana Wong. I have the book somewhere. Um, but it's the Wall Street Journal's Guide to uh, Charts and Graphics. It's a very good do's and don'ts book that talks about color, talks about font, it talks about um, what you should be doing when doing uh, particular uh, graphs. The other one is the Show Me the Numbers by Stephen Few. So he also has some fairly good um, background material on uh, perception and number perception. And he talks about what like color space stuff and those type of things. So those are two good intro books to it. Um, and will get you enough information to do something that will make sure that you're not making any basic fundamental mistakes. And also another good thing to do from time to time is just go have a look at uh, viz.wtf. And if you're thinking about making something that looks a bit like that, you know you're on the wrong track. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to ask if you've got any bad examples. <laughs> I think there's a lot of value in a bad example. Yeah, um, the that uh, Harvard course, they actually do a critique of some of the stuff that's not particularly good. Uh, there's, there's also... Um, the, like there's a bunch of other books, but they tend to be quite dense and very example based. So there's um, Visualize This by Nathan Yao, which is also a just series of examples of things that he thought was good. Um, and the Information is Beautiful books. So David McCandles runs a competition 
called the Information is Beautiful Awards. And there he publishes a compendium every year of the stuff that you just stole my pick. Sorry. <laughs> you just stole my pick with that <coughs> information. Is oh, beautiful. Right. We've got we've got two of those books in the lounge. I love them. Uh, they are very, very nice. I, I got entered last year and I made it to the shortlist. So I'm hoping to have um, some of my work published in the upcoming one. Wow. Congrats. Yes. And holding thumbs. Yeah, I didn't win. I got beaten by a very, very amazing piece of work um, that was all done on paper called Dear Data. It was uh, uh, two people that would exchange postcards about how they would visualize particular data sets, but just drawn on postcards. An amazingly beautiful work. Cool. Well, since we're starting to talk about picks, should, uh, have we got any picks that we should go into? Or uh, do you have any final notes before we go into that, Jeff? Um, so I've got a couple of uh, things that I can show. I think it's if there was anything like as a sort of main takeaway from this is that the, the problem why there is so much bad data visualization out there um, is that people just assume that it's easy and are not necessarily going to spend the time going through some of the information about how this could be made better. And it's just actually, it's, it's taking a little bit of care on the far end of what you're delivering to the person at the end, whether it's coming from a BI side where you're assuming that Excel has done the correct work for you, or you're coming from a design side and you're assuming that what you've learned at design school is going to give you the correct stuff. That's why we end up with a whole bunch of amazing looking graphs that don't give you any information or terrible looking graphs. It's just actually spending a little bit of time figuring the stuff out. It's kind of like, I always go back to what I call the wedding photographer problem. Um, a good photographer knows how photography works, but almost everyone assumes they can do photography. And if you're not going to spend money on a professional photographer at a wedding, you're going to come away with something that'll be okay, but it's not going to have that same flair. But yet we, but people assume that it's something that they can do, and it's, this is the problem: is it's that assumption that is incorrect. Yeah, that's such a nice analogy. The wedding photographer. Mm. Yeah, kind of thing where you get what you pay for. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yet it seems easy. You know, like it's just something that people assume that holding your phone up at a in a wedding is as yeah, good. I'll get my cousin to do it. Eh? A very expensive camera. <laughs> 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 all right um yeah shall we start heading into some picks kenneth do you want to kick us off on that yes so the spoiled one is the information is beautiful books they're absolutely fantastic but they <clears throat> uh, um there's also a great blog uh information is beautiful.net uh we can see a lot of the visualizations that's made it into print not all of them are there but that's great then one of my favorite d3 visualizations is actually from 2013 it's on the new york times they have this post titled among the oscar uh, contenders a host of connections and they basically lay out a bunch of people uh, involved in the oscars actors producers directors all this and then you can like hover over and see the networks and explore it it is fantastic i love going there and then <clears throat> when we mentioned the uh, when jeff mentioned the first infographics or the pie chart and the um, I've got the other one was oh the uh, the cholera map. It reminded me of of uh, also one of the other pieces that they consider one of the first infographics is from Charles Joseph Minard. This guy visualized Napoleon's eighteen twelve invasion of Russia, 
And it's absolutely amazing how he draws this line um, as they moved from wherever they started into Russia and where they basically failed and turned around. But you can see the line loosely follows the geography and it goes like just gets thinner and thinner and thinner as his forces um, get like, you know, this just the attrition of whatever at the stages. The winter caught them. A lot of them just died in, in battles. And then like on the way back and you it's just, you can see how they got like, yeah, I don't know, like a, a, fr a small fraction of them made it back to the starting point. And yeah, this was considered one of the first infographics. It's a really interesting map. And I think it, I don't know what year he made it in, but it's pretty cool hand-drawn. Like, yeah, I'll put it, post a link for the show notes. Uh, 1869. <laughs> I, I love that piece of work. It's one of the most amazing bits of data visualization. It's, it's really, really incredible. Yeah. And, <laughs> Yeah, well worth checking out if you want to see the history of this stuff. But I'll find links to the um, images for the other ones as well for us. That sounds, I also want to see Florence Nightingale's pie chart. And I've seen the John Snow's cholera map. Um, I don't know how true it is, but I think there's a spot in that cholera map that's like almost a white like little block that's not affected at all. And that was a monastery. And the monks only drank their own beer. And they used clean water that they got elsewhere. And so they were not affected oh. by the cholera at all. So this is one little <laughs> fluke in the map. <laughs> so yeah, beer. All right, that's me. Jeff, I know you've given us quite a lot throughout the show, but have you got any other picks you'd like to share? Um, so in in terms of box, the the specific one um, is the quantitative display of visual information. So that's the seminal Edward Tufty work. Um, and that one, it's, it's an amazing book. Um, so his other books cover a lot of the stuff, but that was the first one that, that really, um, sparked it off. And he has a long critique on the, the Minard map as well. Um, but there's a, a guy called Mortiz, M-O-R-T-I-Z Stefano. Um, and he does a thing called the OECD better life index. And as an interactive, um, visualization, it's amazing. It's, it's about, uh, mapping different countries and the um, the sort of various measures of um, what it's like to live there. And then you can mix and match and try and work out what would be the best place to live. But it has this really incredible, kind of looks like a flower, and each of the sort of different um, uh, paths that it moves, uh, each sort of um, the petal of a flower would be a particular measure. But it's an amazingly... Um, it's got amazing aesthetic and it's really, really fun to use. Um, and the last one is, uh, it's a D3 based wind map. I can't think of the thing offhand, but I'll send you the link, but it takes all of the current wind measures and overlaps it on a globe, the globe you can rotate and move. And it uses the, the canvas element to actually draw the little lines of wind. And it's basically a map of the world, what the winds are currently doing at any point in time. Um, and you can then zoom in right down to sort of basic level using public data and D3. It's an amazing piece of work. Awesome. Um, Len? Um, I'm just going yeah. to change topic a bit. I'm talking on the 14th of the Closure user group on uh, logic programming. So if anyone's interested, do come along. I'd love to have you there. It's going to be interactive. We're going to try and understand what logical or relational programming is all about. Cool. Then from my side, I'm going to pick episode 26, where we uh, we spoke about open data and civic hacking with Jason Norwood-Young. So if this is um, 
with the appetite, then go take a look at some of the other data visualization and uh, open data stuff that we spoke about then. Cool. Uh, well, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Jeff, thanks for thanks for your time. Yeah, no really problem. enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot. That was amazing. Cool. Okay. Thanks, guys. That was amazing. Thank you. Uh, listeners, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Please leave us ratings. Give us some feedback. We would love to hear from you. Uh, you can also catch us in the ZA Developers Slack group in the ZA Dev Chat discussion channel. Um, and we said a dev chat on Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus. Yeah, wherever you get your social fix, just find us there. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.